How is it going, everybody? Welcome back to CEO Journals. For those of you that are new here, I am your host, Ethan Bridge, and I just want to start off by saying thank you all for tuning in to today's show. What makes the best the best? It's what they do when nobody is watching. And how have certain teams and businesses been able to sustain unparalleled success while others are sporadic and inconsistent? It's simple. It's their culture. Today's guest on the podcast, Alan Stein Jr., is a keynote speaker and author who spent 15 plus years as a performance coach, working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet. And when I say the highest performing basketball players on the planet, listen to this testimonial from Kevin Durant, a two-time NBA champion, a two-time NBA Finals MVP and 10-time All-Star. Alan played a huge role in my development, on and off the court, and his guidance helped me to get where I am today. I think that says it all. During his time as a coach, he was able to see how these world-class players utilise these unseen hours, and now teaches others how to by utilising the mindsets, rituals and routines of those world-class athletes and coaches. He also realised how successful leaders uphold incredibly high standards and they foster a culture of collective accountability. This is how those top teams were able to sustain that unparalleled success I mentioned at the beginning of the introduction. Alan is incredibly motivational and incredibly intelligent, so I cannot wait for you to hear what he has to say. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CEO Journals. I am incredibly excited for today's episode because we have Alan Stein Jr. on the show. How are you doing today? I am fantastic, Ethan. It's great to connect with you, my friend. Of course, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. So for the listeners who don't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a quick 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Absolutely. Well, at present, I'm a very amicably divorced and proud father of three. I have 10-year-old twin sons and an eight-year-old daughter. Uh, I am a professional keynote speaker and author by trade, uh, but that comes on the heels of spending 20 years as a basketball performance coach, where I handled the strength, conditioning, and fitness uh, for elite youth and high school teams and programs and players, uh, which also gave me an entry into working with some of the game's best players in the NBA uh, so I've had a, a pretty fun and interesting career and journey so far, but hopefully that was under the 60-second bar that you set, my friend. Well under, well under. And I can't, can't wait to talk about that as I'm a big sports fan myself. So I admire the field. Obviously, you spent the majority of your career in so far, so cannot wait to dive into that more. But the way I like to start all my episodes is sort of to throw it back with my guests and ask them about their time at school. So let's focus on a 16-year-old version of yourself. How were you at that point? Did you cruise through school, straight A student? Were you just bang average or were you just straight up class clown, didn't give a damn? Uh, I would say I would be somewhere in the middle. Uh, but let me preface it with both of my parents were elementary education uh, teachers. My dad ended up being a principal, but uh, I grew up with a very strong respect and appreciation for school and for education. However, I didn't really enjoy school. I, I enjoyed the social component. Uh, I enjoyed the sports component. And there were a handful of classes that I really enjoyed and had high curiosity in. And in those classes, they just came naturally and came easy. Those were easy A's. Uh, everything else, 
even though this goes against my current life philosophy, uh, at my journey at 16, I did the basic, uh, the base amount necessary to get a, you know, a B or a C. Like I, I wasn't striving to get straight A's, but I made sure that I did enough uh, that I could keep my grades up high enough that I could still play sports and my parents would be okay with that. So somewhere in between, but but what it actually did was it reinforced the belief that I had very strong now, which is we should all be doubling down on the things that we're most passionate about and the things that, that come naturally to us and that we do the best with. So when I look back on some of those classes, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, there's no wonder why I did well in them. Uh, I enjoyed them. And then those that I didn't, I didn't. For sure. And that's something I find fascinating about uh, where you're from as well is especially in school and the sports teams, if you're not getting the grades, you don't get to play in the teams, do you? That's not the case here in England. I mean, you could be completely flunking school and be awful in your lessons, do crap in your exams and still get to play for the sports team. But in America, it's, it's education first every time, isn't it? Well, it's, that's what they say and what they preach. And yes, you do have to be eligible. But to be honest, the bar for eligibility is so low you can still be a really poor student and still be eligible. You know, it's not like they, they set the bar at a very high academic standard, um, but they did want to create some standard. And, you know, it just depends on uh, the school or the area. You know, when, when they say student athlete, which is how they're referred to here in the States, uh, they intentionally put student first because they want everyone to believe that that's what's most important. Uh, hmm. But many times institutions and schools and coaches in particular tend to flip that around and their behavior shows you that sport is way more important than the academic side. For sure. So where did your love for basketball begin? Where did it all start? Uh, at four or five years old, um, uh, the, the first point. basketball team, yeah, the first basketball team that my parents signed me up for, uh, I just immediately fell in love with the sport. Um, while I don't have a, a vivid memory of who was coaching me at the time, um, I can only believe that whoever that person was made it fun and provided an environment for me to really enjoy and explore the sport uh, because I had such a great taste right from the beginning. And, and I'm so thankful that here 40 years later, basketball is still a major pillar in my life. So of the many things in this world I'm very grateful for, uh, at the top of that list, aside from my health and the health of my children, is the fact that I've been able to make a living uh, pursuing something that I've been passionate about my entire life. So as a kid then, did you grow up wanting to become a player? Or at what point did that sort of transition into realizing that you actually wanted to become a coach? Well, when I was really young, you know, when you're little, you have a very narrow view of what the world is. You know, for the most part, you can't see past the end of your street. So you kind of think your own neighborhood is as big as the world gets. And, you know, I was one of the better basketball players in my neighborhood. And then you get to elementary school and I was one of the better players at my elementary school. And then same thing in middle school. And you start to think, okay, well, if I'm the best at my elementary school, I'm sure that's good enough to play professionally. And it, isn't, it wasn't until I got older and into high school that the world started to open up. And I realized, okay, at some point, my playing career is going to end. But let me see if I can extend it all the way through college. Uh, let me see if I can play an extra four years after high school and, and let my passion for the game continue. 
Uh, so the writing was on the wall. I knew in high school I was not going to be an NBA player, but I did believe I had what it took to play collegiately and to get my you know, schooling paid for on scholarship. So I still pursued being a player, but I knew at some point I was going to have to hang that up at the end of college and decided pretty early uh, that I wanted to stay in the game of basketball and that I wanted to do so as a performance coach. For sure. Smart move by carrying on so you got your schooling through as well. But that's very self-aware of you at a young age because there's a lot of kids out there that would simply not think that way. They'd have it in the back of their mind that that is the only pathway they want to, want to take. They only want to become a professional player. And if they don't, well, they had no backup plan. But for, your, for a kid of your age at the time, that's very self-aware. You don't find that very often. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I guess when you frame it that way, it, it had decent awareness. You know, one of the things that my parents taught me uh, or modeled for me rather, because they didn't come out and say it was, I saw how much they enjoyed their jobs as teachers, you know, and, and teachers, you know, here in the States, uh, now during this COVID-19 where everyone's homeschooling their children, uh, I think uh, parents have a much stronger appreciation and respect for what teachers go through every day. Um, but, but teachers, um, they're not as, as, as praised and as, as lauded as they should be. I mean, it's such a, an altruistic vocation, but it's not one that comes with a lot of compensation or a lot of accolades, which means the people that choose to teach, they do it because they love it. You know, they either love the subject that they teach or they love helping young people. So every single day I saw my parents go to work doing something that they love to do and doing something that they enjoyed. And they both had a very good acumen for teaching and instructing. So they, they found that intersection between what they loved and what they were good at. And ultimately, that's what they modeled for me. So at that age, where I may have had self-awareness, I had very limited interests. There weren't very many things I was passionate about. And it just happened that basketball uh, and coaching uh, also aligned with things that I thought I'd be pretty good at. So it just seemed like a natural fit. But to be honest, at the time, it was about the only fit. I didn't even consider doing anything else. So how does a coach in basketball rise through the ranks like you did and get the opportunity to coach some of the best up-and-coming up talent, essentially? Well, I was basically – so from a performance coaching standpoint, and just so folks know, so as a performance coach, I was a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, I was responsible for improving athleticism and fitness. Uh, I wasn't teaching them how to, to dribble or shoot or pass. Um, uh, so I was kind of a subset of the basketball coaching community. Uh, but I was basically uh, um, self-employed. I mean, the way that I actually earned my living was training basketball players. You know, at the time, everyone called them personal trainers. And, and I was basically a personal trainer for high school basketball players. But then I was able to work at two high schools here in the Washington, D.C. area uh, that have produced over a dozen players currently in the NBA. So it started off with just training. Uh, we'll just call them regular kids. And then when I got an opportunity to work at those two schools, uh, one of which is where Kevin Durant graduated from. Uh, the other is where Victor Oladipo graduated from, you know, two NBA All-Stars. And once I was able uh, to be a part of those programs, it took my notoriety uh, on a national level to a much higher degree. And that opened up doors for opportunities to work events for Nike, uh, for Jordan Brand, for USA Basketball, um, McDonald's All-American Game, and all of those different things. So uh, it was really my ability to find a way into those programs, add value and service to them that opened the doors for me to kind of work my way up. But the entire time, you know, I had to hustle. I, I was self-employed, uh, an entrepreneur, if you will, and ran my own training business. That's actually how I paid my bills. 
for sure. I know you dropped a couple of two very big names there in the basketball world. Did you actually get to uh, coach Kevin Durant personally and you actually had that opportunity? I did. Yeah, I had a chance to meet Kevin when uh, he was a sophomore in high school before he came uh, to Montrose Christian, which is the school that I was working for at the time. Uh, so yeah. I got to meet Kevin really young. And, and same thing with, with Victor. You know, one of the things that I think is unique uh, about my journey that I'm so thankful for was, you know, while working at Montrose and working at DeMatha and just working here in the Washington, D.C. area, which is probably a, a top five uh, metropolitan area in the United States for youth and high school basketball. I mean, when you look at the players that have come out of uh, Baltimore, D.C., Northern Virginia and Maryland, I mean, it's it's a who's who of really good players. So I happen to be in a great geographical area to get access to really, really good players. And, and that most certainly, you know, helped with the entire process. So uh, part of it was just being in the right place, but then also part of it is just being uh, at the right time. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, but he talks about being in the right place doesn't mean anything if it's not the right time. And mm -hmm. I happen to be graduating college uh, in the late 1990s, so 1998, when basketball performance training really was in its infancy. You know, there weren't very many people doing it. Um, so I got in at a time where it was a little less competitive and I got to come in and, and have some opportunities that would have been much harder to get, you know, 10, 15 years later and got to work with some really elite level players. Uh, but back to that vantage point. So I got to see some future stars, kind of the before picture, if you will. I got to see Kevin Durant and Markel Fultz and Victor Oladipo when they were 14, 15 years old before they made it big. And then, as I mentioned, I got an opportunity to do some work for some events for Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball, and I got to see the best players in the world, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Stephen Curry. I got to see those guys after they had already made it big time. Uh, so I got to see the after picture. So the fact that I've been able to see the before and the after picture of what it takes to be an elite-level basketball player, I think gives me a really unique perspective that I'm incredibly thankful for. For sure. Something I'm dying to ask thing, and you, I know you mentioned that before stage, when you got to coach Kevin Durant at that age where you first met him, what set him apart from the rest? Did you know at that time that he had the ability to become essentially an all-star player? What set him apart from the rest of the kids of his age? Uh I knew at that time that he was going to be an exceptional player, and I had zero doubt that he would be able to play in the NBA. Uh, but yeah, there's no way that I knew at that time uh, that he would be an all-star player, uh, a future Hall of Famer, an MVP, uh, and, and arguably, if healthy, I mean, he's one of the top two or three players in the game right now, in the entire world. Mm. So no, I didn't have that type of, of foresight, but there were a few things about Kevin that, that I noticed immediately. Uh, one, certainly, were his physical gifts. I mean, when I met him, he was 6'9", uh, and yeah, he was, he was on the skinnier side, but he had very long arms, he had great hand-eye coordination, great balance and body control, you know, he, he, he just, he had complete control of his body, and, and to be 6'9", and be able to handle the ball and shoot the ball with guard-like skills and precision uh, was pretty remarkable. Uh, I also could tell that, that he had a very high passion for the game, that he wasn't just playing the game of basketball because he was tall. He was playing the game of basketball because he loved the game of basketball. There was nothing else in the world he'd rather do than get into the gym and, and get up shots or to, to run and play some pickup or some five-on-five. Five. Uh, it was also obvious to me he was very fundamentally sound, even at a young age. He had perfect shooting mechanics. Uh, he had pristine footwork. 
Um, I also noticed that he had a very high basketball IQ. Kevin really understood the game on a cerebral level uh, that would rival most coaches. So Kevin kind of had the, the full package of everything that he needed. So with that being said, I could tell he had the potential to be a really good player. Uh, but, uh, but as you know, there's plenty of people with potential. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come to fruition, and it's definitely not guaranteed. For sure. And you, I know you touched on fundamentals there as well. And it's, especially with sports, a hell of a lot of sports, you can, and the aspects of it, you can translate directly into business. There's a lot of things and processes that people go through that are exactly the same as they are in business. And something you touched on there are the fundamentals. And I know you talk a lot, a lot about the fundamentals. So I'd love for you to go through, of course, it, obviously everyone knows in basketball, the fundamentals, passing, shooting, dribbling are essential, but how this can then translate into a business sense. Have you got any stories that you'd like to tell from your journey so far? I know you definitely have one, um, but if you could share that and sort of that lesson and how it translates into business, that'd be amazing. Oh, I'll be happy to. Well, what I think would be best is I'll make sure I provide you with a link to a much more dramatic telling of the story yeah. that, that would be better than me telling it now, but I'll happily give you the gist. And, and the summary of it was back in 2007, uh, I had an opportunity to meet Kobe Bryant for the first time. And at, in 2007, you know, MJ had already retired. Uh, LeBron was still on the come up. Uh, Kobe was the best player in the game. And I got an opportunity to watch one of his really early morning workouts. And I remember being surprised at how basic the drills were that he was doing, that he spent a ton of time just doing basic footwork and offensive moves. And that really surprised me as a young coach because I figured uh, somebody of his stature uh, was going to be doing some drills with some, some sexiness and some sizzle to him. So uh, I was so confused by that that later that day, I had to ask him and, and just said, Kobe, you know, I don't get it. You're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And he was very gracious and kind, uh, but said with all seriousness, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And, and that was really a pivotal, life-changing lesson for me. Because uh, that's when I realized that just because something's basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. See, people mm. use those words as if they're interchangeable, as if they're synonyms, but they're not. Basic and easy don't mean the same thing. So uh, if it was you know, easy, everyone else would be doing it. And you know, as, you all, as you know, uh, and your listeners know, we live in a world that tells us it's okay to skip steps, tells mm -hmm. us we should always be looking for a shortcut or a hack, you know, tells us we can circumvent the process. But anytime you do that, you're making a grave mistake because the basics work. They always have and they always will. And they will in any industry. They will personally. They will professionally. They will individually. They will organizationally. So if you want to get good at anything in any line of work, you need to figure out what are the basics you already established them perfectly for basketball, footwork, shooting mechanics, uh, passing, dribbling, you know, but what are the basics in your line of work? And then are you working on those things relentlessly every single day during the unseen hours? Because that's the only path to mastery. So if you want to be an exceptional leader or a CEO, then you need to figure out what are the basics of doing that. And then you need to work on those the exact same way that Kobe worked on his footwork especially in business as well they they set the foundations for everything else as well so if you haven't got these and as especially if you are say the ceo or the founder and you're building this business and you haven't got those fundamentals you haven't got that foundation you're not going to be able to go places or end up scaling because everything depends on those core values essentially 
Yeah. Well, what's, what I find interesting is, uh, and, and this is where we have to make sure we have great clarity when we articulate this. You can have a player that doesn't work on the fundamentals and still becomes a really good basketball player, comparatively speaking. But that doesn't mean that they're the best player that they're capable of being. And it's the mm -hmm. same in business. I'm sure there's some people that have grown big companies and have amassed a lot of wealth, uh, but they did so in spite of their habits, not because of them. They did so without mastering the basics, which means they would be even more successful, more wealthy. They'd perform at a higher level if they mastered the basics. So when we're talking about this, we want to throw out the comparison game. And all we want to do is focus on, are you doing what you need to do to be the best? And then you fill in the blank basketball player or CEO that you can be. And the only way you can answer yes to those two things is if you're consistently working on the basics. And I will say that in business um, or as a CEO, it's very rarely the technical skills that you need to refine to that point of mastery. It's usually uh, what many people call the soft skills, things like self-awareness and emotional intelligence and your ability to communicate you know, those are the skill sets that I consider the basics because they have the highest utility, which is why if you work on those things and you are the CEO of this company and you master those fundamentals, you could easily go be the CEO of another company in a completely different industry and still be very successful because you would have mastered the foundational principles and fundamentals as opposed to just getting really good at, say, coding and then you can't necessarily go to another company unless what they need is coding. So emotional intelligence and communication and leadership skills, they have the highest utility. And I believe they are the fundamentals to business. For sure. And it also translates slightly into the fact that what is why people say before you end up outsourcing it, try and learn a bit behind it yourself before you actually do is anyone can simply if i didn't know how to do something with the podcast, I could just outsource it. But if I had no idea how to do it myself, there's no point in outsourcing it because I wouldn't know if that person was doing a good job or if they were doing it the best they possibly can because I haven't tried it myself. As long as I've got, I feel it's a bit better to have some form of idea of what you're outsourcing so you can then sort of gauge how well that person is then doing it. Do you agree? Absolutely. And, and that will also do a few other things. One, it'll give you a much stronger appreciation for when you do outsource it. You'll have walked a little bit of the path that that person's mm. walking through. So if you, if you figure out how hard it is to edit a podcast, that will give you more gratitude and appreciation when you do outsource it and the person's able to edit it perfectly and, and turn that thing around in 24 hours where it probably would have taken you three times as long and a whole lot of headaches and curse words, then that's actually great for building that team cohesion and that culture. But it'll also help you improve in other areas because if we're just using podcasting as an example, and, and this is not something that I'm an expert in by any way, shape, or form, it'll probably help you improve in some of the other portions of the podcasting because now you can see the final picture. And you can say, well, you know, I'm going to change the way that I record this file because it'll make it easier for the person that's editing it. Or I'm going to do this because it will help in this process. So you do want to have a rough understanding of how the entire machine works but then you want to make sure, as you already alluded to, that once you know how everything works, then you can go ahead and outsource the things that someone else can do more efficiently and effectively than you can so that you can focus on what you need to do. Uh, and that's so important for CEOs and for leaders. I mean, right now, at present, the only person that can be conducting the interview is you. 
That, mm. that part can't be replaced. Every other portion of this thing, from posting it to editing it to adding whatever, like that part can be outsourced. So if you spend all of your time working on those things, then you won't have as much time to dedicate to the craft of being able to be an excellent interviewer like you are. Or you won't be able to have as much time to, to find and solicit and locate guests. So it will actually hamstring you uh, if you don't do that. So I love the way you brought that up because it is the balance. We have to have a general understanding of how the machine works, but then we need to make sure that we get enough people on our team that can allow us uh, to eliminate as much friction as possible so that we can be swimming uh, with very little, uh, with, with maximum efficiency and effectiveness. Amazing. You articulated that perfectly. So thank you for reinforcing my point. Um, something I do want to ask you then is why, why did you stop coaching? Why did you then transition into what you do now, essentially? Because many, many kids listen to it. So 50% of my audience is between the ages of 18 to 25. And if they're interested in sport, oh, awesome. they're looking at what you were doing previously is like the dream. You are alongside the best players in the world at basketball doing what you love doing. Why did you transition out of it into what you do now? Uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, I don't want to be overdramatic and say that I was burnt out, but I could see that I was heading in that direction, that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing at present uh, as much as I had in years past. So keep in mind, too, that, that I did that for almost 20 years. So it's not like I did it for a year and a half and then was ready to move on. You know, 20 years at that time was half of my entire lifetime, and I was just ready for a new challenge. I was ready to do something different. A good portion of it, and I say this with all the respect in the world, you know, uh, as I was getting older, uh, my relationship with the players was much more uh, in one direction. I was teaching them and coaching them. You know, there wasn't a whole lot that they were pouring into me. Now, most of that had to do with age. You know, again, I say this very respectfully. There's not a whole lot that a 15 or 16-year-old is going to be able to teach me at that point. So I didn't find myself growing. And to me, I've always uh, linked growing and improving and development with happiness. Uh, I like the challenge of, of learning new stuff, and I've always been um, you know, very curious. So I wanted to move into a vocation where the people I was working with would challenge me and push me to grow to new heights. So it wasn't like I felt like I mastered basketball performance training or that I didn't like working with kids or coaches because I absolutely did. I just felt kind of stagnant in my own personal growth. And I thought, well, if I can take all of these lessons that I've learned through the game and I can take them outside of the gym and put them into the boardroom or put them on a corporate stage or, or so forth, that would be a new and exhilarating challenge. And then now the people I'm going to be speaking with are going to be much more of my peers than, much, you know, than, than when I was working with yeah. basically teenage boys. So that was the main reason for it. I needed to pivot into something I was more passionate about at that time and I needed something that was going to challenge me to keep pushing and growing. Was it an easy transition for you? Did you sort of hit the ground running and got the gig straight away, got a few clients? Or was it, was it a slow process? Was it, was it a bit of a drag before it started, the ball started rolling? It was both. Uh, it was a fairly seamless process. And the only reason it was is because of all of the lessons that I had learned the hard way when I started my basketball training business and, and did plenty of things wrong. But thankfully, I, I learned from those. So I knew when I wanted to kind of start this new service-based business, uh, you know, I, I'd got some of the bumps uh, in the road out of the way and I could sidestep some of the land, landmines. So as far as the transition into the business, that was pretty easy. 
but I did have to exercise patience before I could start picking up clients because I, I was leaving an industry where I'd spent 20 years building up name recognition and brand credibility and I was jumping over to an industry where I had none. I mean, uh, still to this day, I've never had a corporate salaried job in my entire life. So I was entering a world where most folks had no idea who I was. Uh, so that took some time to be able to earn uh, you know, opportunities to work with them. But I knew that going into it. So I, I leaned in with optimism and poise. I wasn't frustrated by it. You know, I knew that it was going to take a couple years to get things going. But I also knew that once uh, I got those couple years and lots of reps under my belt, that things were going to start going uh, exponentially better. And that's the position I'm in right now. You know, I've been doing this for four years on the corporate side. Uh, I would say the, the first two years was a lot of unseen hours working on my craft and developing relationships. Uh, and now the last two years, things have really started to skyrocket. And, and that's all part of the process. For sure. I haven't spoken to this uh, on this topic for a long time because uh, I haven't had a speaker. I've had speakers on the podcast before, but I haven't actually gone into this topic. For someone who does want to start public speaking and speaking on stage and doing coaching like you do, how what are the initial steps to get into it? Because I feel as if, especially say if I wanted to get into public speaking, I, had, would, I would have no idea what to talk about. And I feel as if how, how would somebody find their niche and then how would they reach out to get those opportunities? Well, first and foremost, I think you would have to start doing some soul searching and have some self-awareness to figure out well, what gifts do you have to share with the world? What message do you have? I mean, you should be able to answer the question, why should anyone listen to you? <laughs> you know, if you just stand up on a stage and open your mouth, uh, why should anyone pay any attention to that? Because in today's day and age, Time is our most precious resource, and our attention in the present moment is the number one currency we have to give another human being, which means it's incredibly valuable. So if you're going to take an hour of someone's time to say something, uh, they better be winning out on, on that time investment. They better be getting something of more value. So first and foremost, you'd have to look at your past and, and stories and lessons and areas of expertise and experience and say, okay, uh, here's some things I have of value to say. So that would be step one. Step two would be to identify a target audience. Who needs to hear what you have to say? Uh, is, it, is it children? Is it adults? If it's adults, are they in the corporate world? Are they in the sports world? Is it entrepreneurs? Is it doctors? You would need to, to narrow down because um, it would be very hard for you to be successful initially thinking that you have a message that applies to every human being walking the earth. Uh, many people make that mistake and think the wider the net I cast, the more opportunities will come in. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. People just view you as a generalist that's just going to go up there and say some cliche things that everybody probably knows already instead of being able to dive deep uh, into a certain group. So uh, you'd better off be being an inch wide and a mile deep than a mile wide and an inch deep. <clears throat> so mm -hmm. once you've established that target market, then what you need to do is you need to ask them or people in that target market a series of questions to really hone in on, you know, what are their pain points? What are their challenges? What is the problem that you solve? Ultimately, that's the number one question you have to answer as a speaker is what is the problem you solve and who do you solve it for? Now, if you are a motivational speaker, in theory, the problem you solve is people lack motivation. So you're hmm. going to give them that. Um, you know, if you're more of kind of a consultant, coach, and strategic speaker, uh, then, then your answer would be different. But you need to go to that group and figure out what are the problems that you're having 
and what is it in my bag of tricks uh, that I have that will be able to help that. Uh, once you've got great clarity on those things, then and only then should you consider actually stepping on stage and speaking. And then at that point, it's a matter of getting reps. So you want to try to get on any stage you can at any time you can in front of that audience to practice working on your material. I'm a big believer in hiring coaches. So the very first thing I did was, was hire a speaking coach, someone that could teach me um, how to present messages in the most effective way possible. And then you just kind of rinse and repeat. It's just like getting good at any skill at that point. Once you know what it is that the, the issue that you're solving for that audience, then you build relationships to get in front of that audience and you just continue to work on your craft. And, and um, that's really the gist of it. And, and you know, uh, there's certainly some additional nuances, but if you could do or anyone listening could do what I just said right there consistently mm -hmm. for a long period of time, then you'd lay the foundation for a, a career in professional speaking. For sure. The fundamentals. Back to the fundamentals. Absolutely. Without question. I love that you broke that down amazingly. Something I'm curious, how, how has this pandemic affected you as a speaker? Have you been able to adapt in the sense that you've been able to join like Zoom conferences and things like that? Or has it really just thrown it on its head for you? Uh, once again, my answer is it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I love being on stage and I love being in front of people. You know, one of the areas that I've really tried to work on as a professional speaker is the ability to read the room and take a pulse of the energy of the room and, and make eye contact, which fills my bucket, but also being able to listen to the room. So if I say something and I land on a point, and I hear some oohs and ahs, or I, I see people immediately look down and start writing something down, well, that's a cue to me as a speaker to pause for a few seconds. Let that point land and sink in. You know, let them, let them fully digest it or write it down, and then I move on. So even though for the most part, I know what it is that I'm going to say and present, it's very much a dance once I'm on stage between me and the audience. And, and sometimes the audience is full of energy, so I don't have to bring as much energy or there'd be too much. It's like putting sugar on sugar. Other times, the, you know, depending on the time slot or the day or the group that I'm working with, sometimes the energy in the audience is really low and it's my job to raise it up a few levels. So all of this are things that I've worked on with being in person. Well, you can throw all of that out the window when you do things via Zoom and you do things um, you know, virtually. Uh, because on, on all of the Zoom calls I've been on, uh, most of the time, people are respectful enough to hit mute. So there is no feedback coming in. So instead of being in a room full of live human beings where I can read and dance with them, now I'm just looking directly at a camera, a cavernous camera, and I'm not getting any real-time feedback. Uh, so that has been challenging, but in a good way. You know, I've probably done, I don't know, 100 Zoom calls and virtual presentations in the past nine weeks, so I'm getting much better at it, and I'm much better now than I was when we started, and I've definitely done more Zoom calls in the past nine weeks than I had done in the previous nine years, so I'm glad that I've been able to work on that skill set, but what the pandemic's really done is remind me how much I love what I do. You know, once yeah. you can't do what it is that you love, you, you really start to miss it, so uh, while here in the States, it doesn't look like I'll be able to get back on stage for another three or four months until that's, that's safe and, and appropriate. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure that I'm preparing myself to, to not be rusty when I am back on stage. But the other thing that the pandemic did, and, and this is really, really important for your listeners to understand, it reminded me that speaking is what I do. It's not who I am. 
Speaking is simply the expression of who I am and who I am to my core is a coach. I'm someone that fills other people's buckets and gives other people tools so that they can improve uh, their performance in any given area. That's who I am to my core. And, and I express that as a basketball performance coach for the first part of my career. And I now express that as an author and a keynote speaker. Um, but, but, but that was why if I got caught up in thinking, well, I'm a speaker, I'm a speaker, now I can't speak, I would have lost my identity. So instead, I just said, I can't speak in the, the manner that I was speaking at before, but I can still deliver my message. I can still help people improve performance. I can still be of service to others. So what's the next best way to do that? Well, it's virtually through podcasts like this and through things like Zoom calls and go to webinar. For sure. And I suppose, as you say, sort of in relation to that, it's opened a whole new realm in the sense that you don't have to travel anywhere. You could do five, 10 Zoom calls in a day Whereas you would not have been able to do that. You, won't, you wouldn't have been able to do five conferences in a day because you wouldn't have been able to travel between them all. Whereas with this, you can. You can do, if you wanted to, five or ten a day. So I suppose it's opened that door in a sense that does benefit you in a way. Oh, it most certainly has. And a few things on that. You just nailed it. I mean, for the most part, um, I would rarely do more than two events in one week. Occasionally, depending on logistics and location, maybe be able to squeeze in a third during a really busy week. But yeah, I would do one or two events a week. Uh, now I'm doing 15 to 20 per week. So yes, very, very scalable. But two things that you have to keep in mind with that. Uh, the first is um, people aren't placing a value on virtual experiences yet to the same degree that they do in person. So most groups at present are not willing to compensate speakers to a very similar degree, which means you'd have to do 20 to 25 virtual events to make the same money that you would do in one or two. I think that is going to shift and change as people start to realize that this virtual stuff, there's something to it. Now, it would never replace the in-person experience that one can deliver. But I do yeah. think in the future, we're gonna see a lot more virtual events simply because of budgets. A group says, we don't have to spend $200,000 to bring all of our regional managers to Orlando, Florida, and put them up in hotels and pay for their foods and, and do all of this. For a fraction of that cost, we can still educate and inspire them, uh, and then we'll just bring them together for an annual event instead of bringing them together for, for quarterly or regional events. So I don't think virtual is going to go anywhere, even once the, the social distancing mandates have been relaxed and we can do in-person events. But the other yeah. thing that, that's so important to remember, uh, yes, don't have to travel. But for me, speaking is emotionally draining. And I say that in a very positive way. Because when I'm done speaking, it's a, a really fulfilling sense, uh, a satisfying feeling of exhaustion when you've left it all out stage, on stage. And there, to some degree, that still happens virtually. Uh, right now, speakers are talking about what's called Zoom fatigue, which is probably <laughs> a new term now because of the pandemic which means you have to guard yourself because uh, you can burn yourself out really quickly by doing 15 to 20 of these uh, a week. You know, at first, if that's the only thing you can do, you're so gung-ho and excited. But for the same reason, I don't want to speak at 120 live events a year. I don't want to do 15 to 20 Zoom events every week, you know, for the next several weeks because it will wear me out. So my job is to be at the top of my game and be the best version of myself so that I can deliver for every single client. So if your business happens to be hiring me on a Friday and you're going to be the number 25 of the 25 Zoom events I've done this week, I owe it to you to make sure that I still bring my A game. 
So if I find that doing 25 events in one week is wearing me out, where I can't be the best version of my virtual self for you, then I have to be responsible enough to make some cutbacks. So right now, I'm still trying to figure out what's the perfect amount for me. You know, for, for live in-person events, about 60 events a year is ideal for me. That's one, maybe two a week for a lot of weeks during the year. I'm perfect with that. Virtual, I'm still trying to get a hold on it because I've done so many right out of the gate. Now I've got to figure out, do I need to cut some down? You know, do I limit it to one or two a day, two to three days a week? Um, but that's fun, trying to figure out that problem and, and solving that problem uh, and the critical thinking behind it is something I actually enjoy. Yeah, and I must say, you are bringing the energy with this call. So it's still, you're, still going, you're still going strong, so don't worry about that Thank one. Thank you. That's okay. Um, something I'd love to touch on is the importance of living in the present because you have the sort of method of stand where your feet are. I'd love to, for you to go in a little, into a little bit more detail about that because I, I think living in the present is incredibly important and it's not spoken about enough. So why, why do you have this um, mandate, stand where your feet are? I believe the key to high performance, the most important mindset and skill set one can develop, uh, regardless of vocation, regardless of age or level, is the ability to stay dialed in in the present moment. Uh, people talk all the time, especially in athletics, about how important mental toughness is. Well, I define mental toughness as the ability to block out all distractions and focus on the most important thing at hand regardless of environment or circumstance. So being able to block out all of the noise and be completely dialed in into the present moment. You're not worried about what happened before. You're not anxious about what might happen in the future. You are right here and right now. And that is the definition of mental toughness. And I believe that's a skill that everyone needs to work on daily to work towards mastery. And I say towards because I actually don't think it's a skill that can be mastered. I think no matter how present one is, you can always increase your level of presence and attention at any given time. But just like any other skill, it takes task-specific repetitions. So for me, I always try and create an environment that's conducive to me being present. So right now, I'm in my home office right outside of Washington, D.C., and the only thing I have going on in my life right now is my conversation with you and staring at this webcam. I don't have my phone on me. I'm not checking email. You know, I'm not doing anything else right now except staying present with you. Now, the moment this call is over, then I'll shift gears and I'll be present for whatever the next activity it is. Even if it's just eating lunch, I want to try to be as present as I can. Not because it's so important to be present while you're eating lunch, because how you do anything is how you do everything. And I want to take advantage of every opportunity I can to be fully present. Now, just so people don't think I'm, I'm a Tibetan monk, yeah, there are times where I'm eating lunch and I'm looking at Facebook or I put on a YouTube video you know, while I'm working out. I'm not saying that everything I do, I'm just focused on in the moment, but I try to stack as many things as I can in that manner so that I can practice the skill. Because to me, from a priority standpoint, the most important thing to me right now is being fully connected to you is giving you my full attention and delivering as much value as I can for your listeners and your followers. That's what's most important to me. And the only way I can do those things is if I'm fully present. And as a host, I am very appreciative of that as well. Because it's not happened to me before, but I imagine there are people that do jump on podcasts and they, their guest is distracted. They've got things elsewhere. And it's just not as good of an episode as the, the host would have hoped for. But as I, as I mentioned again, you are extremely present. 
which is brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, I hate to feel as if I'm jumping around between topics, but I'm, I'm trying to, I've, I've got so much to it. ask you. But I want to fit, I want to try and fit everything in, but something I talk about on every episode is failures. Um, sort of bit of background to why I feel as if, especially in entrepreneurship and social media nowadays, the whole space is being glamorized, especially, um, especially in the fact that these people that we do follow on Instagram, they've already made it. They've already got to that point of success and they are sharing the highlight reel. They are sharing what they've achieved. They are sharing the fact that their business is at a certain level. They're sharing their fancy holidays, nice cars, big houses, the lot. As a, or as an audience member looking at that, that can be somewhat misleading because these people haven't shared their journey up until that point today. Well, some people have, but in many cases they haven't. We haven't seen the enormous amount of failures they've had to go through to get to that point. So that's why I like to bring people on and ask them about a couple of failures they've had in their journey so far, just to bring a more of a sense of reality and give the listeners sort of things that they should just look out for. Because this is, so I ask this everyone's to everyone. So there's, there's a huge list of failures people have given me now. So I know how to combat them if they come up. It's kind of a selfish question as well. So I'd love to ask you, what are, what are some of the failures that have come up in your journey so far? What, what are the, let's go with two of the biggest failures that have come up in your journey so far. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure I could double your list just with the personal failures that I've had. And, and I'm actually okay with that. Uh, before I answer that, though, I do want to touch on something because uh, you brought up a great point um, about watching people on Instagram and so forth. Uh, there's two things to think about. Uh, one, anytime you choose and voluntarily play the comparison game, you're making a big mistake. Because when you play the comparison game, you will eventually lose. Uh, no matter what outside metric you're using to validate yourself, Someone out there has more of it or is better at it. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you're talking about your aesthetics, your body, um, you know, the way that you look or how much money you have or the cars that you drive or number of followers you have. No matter what you have, someone else out there has more. So if you're always playing the comparison game, you will always feel less than because you'll say, man, I'm so proud of this book that I just wrote, but man, I didn't sell as many copies as that guy and now I don't feel good. I've been in the gym relentlessly for the last nine weeks and I'm feeling really good about myself. Oh man, I don't have the abs that that guy has. So I, I personally choose not to play the comparison game and, and that's much easier said than done, but you just have to be very careful uh, about who you idolize on social media and who, who's, you know, whose channels you follow and so forth. The other thing to think about is unless you have concrete evidence otherwise, there's a good portion of people on Instagram that are completely fronting and pretending. <laughs> They're not any more successful than, than any of us are. You know, they rent their cars or, or they have, you know, $100 bill on a stack of ones. I mean, they're not, they want you to think that they're super successful, uh, either to fill a need that they have emotionally or many times it's because they want to sell you a product or a book that tells you how you can be rich and successful, even though they've never achieved that. So that's the other part, not only playing the comparison game, but just be very, very careful uh, who, you're, who you're following and who you're choosing to believe on there. Uh, as far as failures, you know, the, the number one that comes to my mind um, and, and has had a huge impact on my life was, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, I'm amicably divorced. And by definition, a divorce means your marriage failed. And uh, the, the learning that I, I went through uh, about myself and about relationships and, and ways that I could improve when I went through that divorce five years ago 
was incredibly helpful. Um, but that one is, at, is certainly at the top of the list. Uh, but what I've really worked hard over the last decade of my life is to become very resilient to failure. In fact, I don't even look at things that happen all of the time uh, as a failure. I mean, you have to realize, as a professional speaker, I told you my goal is to land 60 full-paid gigs per year. Do you know how many gigs I go after in a single year? Several hundred. <laughs> and I only land 60% of them. So that means, and I don't know what the exact ratio is, but that means for every yes I get, I'm probably getting two or three no's. And I don't take it personal. That just means at that time, I'm not the best fit for that event. Or it might have something to do with my budget or my topic or whatever it may be. Or they may need a, a female, and obviously I'm not. So I don't take it personal, but you better believe in the, the professional speaking world, um, I, I experience failure every single day. And I don't take it personal. I don't let it affect my confidence. I just say, okay, this one didn't work out. The next one's going to. And I still continue to move forward with optimism and, and poise. So I would say the biggest one is without a question, my divorce. Uh, but then I face little teeny failures every single day of my life. Um, I know it's a personal topic, but I'd like to just ask one thing on the divorce is how did it improve you as a person? What, how did you come out the other side of it? Uh, through therapy and counseling. I actually <laughs> decided to, to get some professional help um, to help me with that process. Uh, my ex and I actually went in together as a couple uh, weekly for six months, and we learned a lot about ourselves and each other and the relationship. And then I chose to go weekly for the next year and a half and have basically a coach. I mean, they're a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist, whatever you want to call them, uh, but I just considered them a coach and they helped coach me to be able to see my blind spots, uh, see opportunities for growth and things, patterns of behavior that I had previously that, that my own ability to be happy, undermining my ability to be a high performer in personal and professional situations and just undermining me to be the best version that I could be. And thankfully, uh, after a year and a half of, of individual coaching, I started to develop some of those muscles and skills that I could then work on those things myself. And I've been working on that stuff daily ever since. So I, I've always said, outside of my children being born, the greatest thing that has ever happened to me was getting divorced because it's what led to therapy. And therapy is what led to self-awareness and a much higher sense uh, of emotional intelligence. So I wouldn't trade that failure for anything in the world. Thank you for sharing that as well, because obviously that is a very personal story. And a lot of people wouldn't want to talk about that sort of thing that's happened in the past. So I do appreciate you bringing that up and talking about how you grew as a person because of it. Because I think that's an, arguably fascinating. I think that's a brilliant fact that you are able to look back at it and see it as one of the best things that's happened to you. Because a lot of people look back and think, oh, it's got it's the worst. So it's interesting. Um, that does round up the bulk of the episode. So that's, that's everything awesome. I had researched on you planned on you and wanted to ask you but i do finish off every single episode with a final five just five quick questions to which i hope you have five quick answers so perfect whenever you're ready i'm gonna ask the first question so who is the first person that comes to mind when i say the word successful uh my father why uh, because he loved what he did and, and uh, he used happiness, even though happiness and success are not synonymous, I do believe they're very directly related. So I believe one that lives and leads a happy life of fulfillment is successful regardless of any outside metrics. I love that you mentioned that as well, because I like the people that uh, challenge that question in the fact that, well, what do you define success as? Because when we are asked, or when someone says, oh, they're successful, 
people instantly associate that with that, that with money. It's just how our brain works. But yes. people that can argue that and go, well, where are they successful in the other realms? Because I believe it all totals up to that one big thing well, that is successful. Yeah have health i believe we define yeah we define our own success so it's kind of like saying uh we get to design the test and then we take the test uh, mm. you should be able to pass it if you're the one that writes the questions for yeah. so uh, i don't ever let anyone else uh define success for me and, and it's funny because some people actually find what i'm about to say kind of off-putting and i understand where they're coming from but i actually believe that i'm successful and, and i don't say that to brag, and I don't say that because I've, I've accumulated any you know outside metrics that are remarkable. I say that because I have a very happy and fulfilling life. I do the things that I love to do with the people that I love to do them with, and you know I, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. So by my definition, I'm successful. If someone else wants to say, well, you have to have a certain amount of this or a certain amount of that, then by their definition, I might not be successful, but that's okay. I'm the one that has to live this life, so I'm the only one that will define it. Of course. Thank you for that. Um, four questions left. I know we're short on time, so let's, let's, sure. let's, plow, let's plow through these. Um, what is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be time, money, energy, or simply an Amazon purchase. I'm going to go with the time and the money investment of going to therapy once a week for almost two straight years. And, and it was costly because here in the United States, that's not covered by insurance, so it comes out of pocket. And it's an hour out of my day once a week, plus driving to and from, and how emotionally exhausting it would be at the end of some of those sessions. So I would usually kind of block a half day off. So that was without question one of the biggest investments I've ever made, but absolutely the best. Awesome. Do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? Are the habits you have today on par for the dreams you have for tomorrow? And that, that happens to be hanging up in the training center at Penn State University in their football training center, uh, which is one of the most prestigious uh, football programs here in the United States. So I'm, I'm honored and thankful to have that quote hanging up. Love it. Um, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? I ask this question selfishly because that is my age. So anything that people say to this question, I just instantly take on board if I can. Work on becoming the best version of yourself every single day. Have a vision of who it is that you want to be. So you're 21, I'm 44. I want you to give some thought to, to who you want to be when you're 44 years old. You know, what are the traits and qualities that are most important to you or you believe will be most important to you when you're 44? And then make sure as many decisions that you make every single day of your life are in alignment with becoming that person. If you say to yourself, uh, you want to be mentally, physically, and emotionally fit when you're 44, then make sure the way you behave today as a 21-year-old is in alignment with that. Make sure that you eat well and you get exercise and you sleep well and you connect with other people and you're reading and listening. You're doing all of the things that will allow you to be mentally, physically, and emotionally fit uh, when you're my age. Yes, sir. On it. Don't you worry. Final question of the episode. And I, I apologize as it's a bit of a morbid way to end the episode, but I ask this question. No worries. Get extremely interesting answers, and I'm I'm interested to see what you come up with. So the question is: Are you afraid of dying? Uh, I'll answer it the way I have before: Yes and no. You know, I'd be lying that that if if I said right now, if someone walked in this room and said, "Alan, you've got one week to live," I'm sure that my initial Russia reaction would be one of anxiety and worry, because in in from my belief system, uh, death is very unknown. Um, I don't personally believe in an afterlife. Uh, I believe it's kind of like extinguishing a candle. So when it's out, it's out. Um, so I don't actually fear anything about being dead. 
but the thought of not being conscious uh, is something that's that can be tough tough to grasp. But as yeah. far as you know, uh, the, the best way I can think of it is um, I don't remember what it was like before I was born because I didn't have a soul and I wasn't conscious. And there's nothing to be afraid of that. I didn't remember any of it. So I'm under the you know in, in my belief system when I'm dead. I won't know it either. I'll just be dead. But, but I certainly hope too, and the other part, of course, with the fear is uh, the way at which you pass. Uh, like most people, I just hope it's quietly in my sleep when I'm 98 years old uh, and not you know, being attacked by a bunch of rabid wolverines when my last few minutes on earth are, are pretty tough and scary. So yeah, I'll take both sides of that. Uh, overarchingly, no. Um, but I also think I've got so much more that I want to do on this earth. Selfishly, I want to see my children grow up. I want to see them have some of the landmarks and do some of the things that I've been able to do and share that with them. So the thought of that happening prematurely um, certainly is one that I, I don't know if fear is the right word, but can cause a little bit of anxiety. I knew you'd have a brilliant answer. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> You're that, round, that rounds up everything that I've got to ask you today. You've answered all the questions beyond what I could have expected. So thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to pass it over to you now so you can share with the listeners where they can follow up with you, where they can find you, what you've got going on. Plug away. Well, I, I know you uh, made some personal schedule changes in order for us to have this conversation. So I want to thank you for the sacrifice that you made. And, and I've and thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, anyone listening, if you have an interest in getting my book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, you can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. You can also pick it up on Amazon. Or if you like to listen to books and you like my voice, I did the reading for the Audible version, which you can get on audible.com or on iTunes. Uh, you can follow me at Alan Stein Jr. Uh, on any of the major social platforms. Uh, I love getting back to people and having conversations on social. And you can also go to allensteinjr.com uh, for anything and everything else you need from me. So with that, I want to thank you so much, Ethan. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Alan. And listeners, don't worry, they will be in the show notes below. So don't worry about remembering those. Simply scroll down and they'll be there. But Alan, that's it. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast. And I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.